Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored. My chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Josh Nyland is quite possibly the hottest chef on the scene right now. Owner of the St. Peter Restaurant and Fish Butchery in Sydney, he has risen to fame for using an average 91% of every fish he buys. This September, Josh released his Whole Fish Cookbook, which serves as a guide for chefs, home cooks, and anglers who are also looking to waste less of their fish. His recipes range from fisheye chips to milt mortadella, as well as over 50 recipes for the fillets and prime cuts. I've been working through Josh's book for a series I've been writing over at Meat Eater called Nostril to Coddle. Josh's knowledge, guidance, and recipes have single-handedly changed how I clean, process, and cook fish in my own home. I've gone from being skeptical and squeamish to craving fish heads, livers, throats, and more. You can find that series at TheMeatEater.com. In this episode of Anchored, I meet with Josh to discuss how he came to be one of the world's most sought-after chefs and why he chose to focus specifically on seafood. We discuss why fish should be dry-handled and kept away from water, as well as how and why to age fish, the best method to gut them, the differences between farmed and wild-caught fish, and whether fresh fish is really best. I grew up in Maitland, uh, in, in East Maitland really, which is a 30 minute drive from the beach in Newcastle and then a two and a half hour drive north from Sydney. So 
People call it the country, but <laughs> I think that's a little bit sounding too remote. It's the Hunter Valley, I suppose. So oh, yeah. I was probably half an hour from the beach one way and half an hour from the vineyards the other way. So it was a nice place to grow up. It was suburbia. I spent some time there. There's excellent fishing and hunting over there. Yeah. Um, I grew up with mum taking us to the Hunter River in Morpeth and throwing a hand line in and we would use a really primitive scone dough as bait like she'd mix flour and water and vegemite together and then put this rough looking dough on the end of a hook and then throw it into the water and sometimes we'd catch flathead and then other times we'd catch turtles and other times we'd catch eels and then boots and like who knows boots. what <laughs> yeah so i mean that was my fish nostalgia which is really not much so when people say oh did you grow up eating a lot of fish and all that then not really it was majoritively fish fingers and you know the occasional (laughs) bringing a flathead home and and mum washing it under the garden tap outside and then dusting it with too much flour and pan frying it yeah (laughs) sounds about right yeah now why didn't you get into fishing then um i was obsessed by sport i was obsessed with kicking or throwing or catching a ball so that I played basketball as a kid I played I, I swam a lot and then I became really fixated on playing cricket and soccer every summer and winter that was the routine um, I was never allowed to play football so I I was a goalkeeper in soccer and in cricket I was an opening batter and I like to think even though I'm probably you know, thinking far too ahead of myself, I was always thinking I'd either be a chef or I'd be a cricketer. So <laughs> I ended up being a chef, but I, I became very passionate about cricket and I really wanted to pursue that a little bit more professionally. But I decided that, you know, chefing was probably a means to something more significant, I suppose, with so, it being so. And then I think about it and I'm wondering, well, how cutthroat is cricket compared to cooking and then vice versa? So I think it's just as bloody hard, but yeah. It seems like nowadays with television that the culinary world is showing this whole new side. I mean, I've worked in restaurants, so mm. I understand that I've always known that there's this real cutthroat side of the restaurant world, but yeah. it really feels like the dirty laundry is being aired now that there really is this diva attitude in a lot of chefs. Yeah. Has it always been like that? No. Like, I mean, I'm the same as you. I started when I was 14 and nine months because that's when you're allowed to in Australia. So I started working in a cafe and... The next job after that cafe was my first restaurant as an apprentice chef. And I feel in both the cafe and and the that restaurant, there was a value placed on education, which I thought was just uh, a wonderful thing. And the level of hospitality that they showed, not only to the customers coming in, but the, the kind of family network that they created within like the staff culture and making sure people got home not too late or you know you had a lift home or making sure that you were aware if you needed to iron your jacket and all that sort of stuff there was a level of care there towards training and education that exceeded the level of intensity to pursue accolades and awards Mm -hmm. which i feel is quite a unique position to be in working with a group of people that placed education and care above self kind of attainment of glory yeah, and that would explain because your personality now, right? Because it feels like you're not, even though a lot of people who are listening right now are, are hunters and anglers, and they might actually not have heard of you yet. Yeah. And they need to, and I'm just going to tell my listener right now, you're mm. probably the most celebrated chef on the scene right now. It's 
and I and I suppose I'm just working really hard, <laughs> and I'm just um, it's wonderful to have a wife and three children that keep it all in perspective, and the restaurant and the butchery. Now I'm 31 and a lot of things have happened and a lot of things are happening and continue to happen and that's just because I try to keep my head down and and do what I'm good at and I saw myself probably on the whole including days off and the trip away that I've just come back from away from the restaurant for a total of two months in the whole year yeah so beyond that two months I'm here six days a week and I'd probably do around 90 or 100 hours a week and that's against the grain of what's kosher right now of 38 hours a week, which we have our staff working. But for the people that run their businesses, then that's kind of what it takes, especially if you want a level of excellence, I suppose, within your own self. Things just don't happen um, without a lot of hard work, as everybody knows. So to say that, you know, there's a lot of talk about what we do right now, I feel like that's on the back of 16 years of really hard work Mm -hmm. that's all kind of just bubbling to the surface Mm -hmm. now. Because what we are talking about is fairly unique as well. Yeah, and we're Mm going to dive into that. It sticks out to me that you are so humble. You've been Mm -hmm. so helpful to me. You're the busiest person on the scene. You've still made time, and I just wanted to personally thank you for that. Appreciate (laughs) it. So let's get back to your history then. So, and and we're obviously sitting in your restaurant. Busy Oxford Street. There's going to be some noise. (laughs) Why did you decide to go into the chef? world i try to think about it like i i was sick as a kid i i had uh wilms tumor when i was eight years old so i was i had cancer and then in that time of being unwell i would find myself going to chemotherapy a couple of days a week and then there'd be times at school where i would have to leave school to go to chemotherapy then come back to school because i just didn't want to disrupt it too much I was wanting to be around my friends and keep it normal so if there was three hours in the middle of the day I wasn't going to take the whole day off I just kind of went to school for a little bit went and did my thing and then came back to school but what would happen was mum would take me to the appointment and then take me home she would cook me lunch and then I would go back to school and to have somebody to cook you a meal like in the middle of a day where she's working my mum and dad had a business at home and she's working she's got things to do but to stop make something like a hot meal which is by no means fancy it was just a really nice gesture and I think from that and you know meals my dad cooked as well from that I feel like cooking a meal for somebody is one of the most generous acts of humanity and just kindness that you can do it doesn't have to be something that's paid for or luxurious or anything like that it's just just a gesture of kindness that I think is uh, a wonderful thing and we try to express that here at St. Peter and I try to express that in all my work that I do whether it's the level of enthusiasm that I talk right now or whether that's a class that we hold at the butchery there needs to be some level of care and kindness that somebody's gone out of their way to make time to come and see you and got a babysitter or somebody's come from overseas to catch up with somebody you don't know somebody's circumstances as to why they've gathered for a meal and we make sure that we talk about that as a group here at St Peter so that the first contact of coming to this restaurant is a level of kindness so that act is why I cook and why I love to cook and what inspires me to continue to push myself to try to do new things and unique ways of preparing food because that's my way of showing value in the product that we we handle it's not enough just to kind of put it on a plate to a degree 
within this setting and asking for the prices that we do. There needs to be some level of value and generosity. That's a heavy past. Is that so? Is that what you attribute your passion or your desire uh, in, in to be? In part, a chef to? I mean, in part, like I, I feel it's more just understanding that um, I get great satisfaction and personal kind of uh, happiness by cooking for somebody and then watching them consume it and then come to you and say that they loved it. That's yeah. like you can't get much greater. You know, you can't get a greater feeling in life beyond, you know, marrying your wife and seeing your children grow up and all those sorts of things. It's a wonderful thing to watch somebody eat a meal and and say they love it. It's a powerful kind of thing. So I, yeah, would attribute that in that sense. But growing up and, and being unwell, I feel like that just puts a rocket pack on my back. Anything that I want to achieve personally, I make sure that it happens. And if it doesn't, then I work out how to make it happen. How are you now? Are you back yeah, I'm to wonderfully you? well. So twenty, it's a long, long time ago. Twenty-three years ago. So it's not like I mean, I yeah, I was very um, fortunate that I was in good hands and no issues post. Good. Yeah. Good. We need you. <laughs> uh, why seafood? What was it about seafood? Or, or did it start as seafood? No, it's like I was a chef. I, I am a chef and just a chef of all things. And, and I feel like what I do now couldn't happen now unless I had a sound education in all things. So, you know, meat cookery and pastry and all those things I, I love. And, you know, some people say that I'm a starving meat cook that just needs to cook some meat yeah. as opposed to fish because I try to turn a lot of fish into meat. Um, but I uh, I got to work with some amazing people, Peter Doyle and Luke Mangan and Heston Blumenthal and all those people. And one in particular, Stephen Hodges, who had Fish Face Restaurant in Darlinghurst, which was only seafood. And I feel like the affinity between all of those chefs is to a degree seafood because i mean at least for all the ones in sydney there's such a you know affection for seafood we're on we're we're on the water basically and and uh all australians and and globally speaking as well there's a lot of us that really love fish and we would love to eat more fish if we could but there's a bit of confrontation around it a lot of the times where to find it how to cook it what to do with it and so the reason for selecting fish now three years ago to to personally go after it and try to do it with with some renewed vigor is because i worked for Stephen at fish face for a number of years and he taught me the basics of fish very well and it's the kind of education that i couldn't have got anywhere else in the world and i mean that i mean the what he taught me i don't believe i would have received the same information from anybody else anywhere and that was not to wash fish that was to store it at this temperature it was to you know handle it in this way and to cook it in this way we received just about every species of fish you could almost receive within australian waters throughout the time that i was at fish face and every time a fish came through the door he would have a method of cookery for it and it was not only a method that cooked the fish and or or served it raw it was one that was perfect to the actual species itself that did it the best justice and and put it in great revenants and things from sardines herring and mackerel right through to mahi mahi spanish mackerels and coral trouts there wasn't a fish that was beneath him and so Stephen was a very complex man to work with as well like very challenging and cut from that model of years gone by where it's you know a hard school but there was this kind of relationship that we had where it was my education was his priority and I 
to a degree became a bit of a chosen one that he trusted his restaurant within me, which was wonderful because, you know, I was able to fail as well. So he saw failures as a good thing and that was the only way to push forward. And so at 19 to be the chef of his restaurant and be allowed to fail and, you know, allowed to go to awards nights on his behalf because he didn't really want to engage in that too much. He was just more about let's just, you know, do it do our thing he put me into positions of opportunity both positively and negatively so that I could learn from it and to get that kind of learning you know I'm very grateful for that and I felt to not use that information moving forward then that would be a bit of a backslap to him like a slap in the face to not you know utilize a life's work if you're getting so many golden nuggets you know and now to be polishing them is um pretty wonderful so that's why it's fish because i feel like i've i've got a leg up in the sense of the fundamentals that i got taught and once you have those basics then that becomes second nature so then you can become very invested in creativity and expanding upon the knowledge that you know was he were his intentions to have you take over his restaurant Mm -hmm. and yes it was how was there any fallout when you started your own um no, it was challenging because we worked at we worked together at Darlinghurst, which was Stephen's first restaurant, and that was around for I think eleven years. Like it was quite a quite a long time that he was there, and it was greatly loved and adored by Sydney's Sydney siders and Australian wide because it was the same as this restaurant: thirty four seats, hole in the wall. You know, you go in and it's just for the fish and also for a show because usually Steve would be yelling and screaming and carrying on and that was part of what made it special. And then we decided to turn that into fish and chips by Fish Face and make it somewhat more casual and then move the restaurant into a more slightly more formal location and be a bit bigger. And so at that point then the conversation was, let's get you to be part of the business and things. And I think it was based on not knowing enough at that time business-wise, like in a managerial sense and numbers-wise because as a chef, you learn business and management and numbers by repetition like any task. If you do it many times, you get very good at that. And having not done any of that and to be spoiled by being the chef or sous chef or, you know, chef to party of restaurants that don't really let you fail to a degree and somebody's always making it work above you Mm. you never get the opportunity to fail and learn so I hadn't been given the opportunity to run a kitchen by myself managing numbers and books and labor and food and all that sort of stuff so you know and I can only talk about this now because back then I would have told you no no I'm across it I'm all good I can do this I can do it so for poor communicative effort on my behalf and not saying that I wasn't ready for it and just saying that I was ready for everything put me in a place of years later kind of going you know what I can't actually do this because I don't have that foundation of management in my head that came somewhat naturally to Stephen because of being a seasoned pro of 50 years that just knew it like the back of his hand so the two of us just decided, well, I decided to move on. And from that, I suppose we we parted ways for the moment. And, you know, it was, you know, there's an emotive context to it as well that you you want to do right by the mentor that trained you so well. Uh, but then as well, you need to then at that time, having just had my first child, my son, you know, it all became very real that I needed to focus and become 
more skilled within my profession so that I could pursue being better. And I couldn't do that where I was. So I left Fish Face and I ended up taking a job specifically to learn how to be a manager. So I went and I didn't take, I didn't take a job to be hyper-creative, which was hard because ego-wise, it's always you want to tell everybody that this is what we're doing, this is cool, and here's photos of this and this and this. So I went into a restaurant and for four, I think it was just over four months, I didn't tell anybody where I was, which was wonderful <laughs> uh, because it was a bit of solitude where I had a group of people who I'd never met in my life before, both front of house and back of house. I had no bearings or understanding of who they were and what their skill levels were. But I knew that every Thursday I had to turn up to a management meeting with the owner and the, the group of other chefs and front of house people and perform. And so, you know, food cost had to be this, wage cost had to be this. And if it wasn't, you get ready to get yourself pulled apart. And that happened frequently for the first few months get slapped <laughs> pretty pretty <laughs> full on like mentally it was exhausting yeah. to get to the end of week and not understand why things weren't adding up and it was only then through again repetition and failure and all those things that I became far better at it and the people that worked with me stayed with me for the duration of time that I was there so it felt like I had done them right and they got trained well and then on the back of that I realized that I'd gotten to a point where there was a level of confidence in my head that I could run a kitchen I can't I won't say run a business because that only happens when you start running one mm -hmm. um, and then leading a group of people and getting them to do things that you hope <laughs> Uh, you would do as well so just filtering out information and making sure it gets done consistently so yeah 2016 September 1 that takes us to the day that we open this restaurant which is owned by my wife and I so we don't have business partners we do it ourselves in the sense that there's no money tree getting shook every month to to prop things up and fix things it's we we do it uh, ourselves and that was a wonderful thing and probably the best thing that we decided to do so that we can go about our work in our terms because I don't think many people would allow fish sperm to be on their menu if they think that a, <laughs> uh, uh, this restaurant was going to be successful. It's more the smoked salmons and the um, you know fish and chips that should be on the menu to keep the, the place busy. Mm -hmm. But we kind of went about it a bit differently. So I'll say you went about it a bit differently. Yeah. <laughs> now, just down the street, um, yeah. what is it, like six doors down or how? Six, yeah. Uh, there's another shop that you own, yeah. and that is the butchery. Fish butchery, yes. I love it in there. It is <laughs> so cool. Yeah. Because you sell stuff that people can take home that yeah. they can buy for the night yep. I know when I was there I bought pinkling pies and I bought a fish lasagna and then I bought oh, I bought something else I can't remember <laughs> oh crab cakes yeah it was delicious yeah but then you've also got deconstructed fish and the guys in there are fantastic yeah your team really feels like a team yeah can you tell me when that started yeah so 18 months into having St. Peter I just we ran out of room <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so we, yeah, we had this restaurant. It was trading really well. Uh, it was super busy. There was nights where, you know, we had uh, people out the door. And so the temptation then was, let's open another restaurant. And then <laughs> I quickly talked myself out of that because as much as I'd love another restaurant, the consumer then thinks, is Josh cooking my food tonight? Yeah. And unfortunately, I'm at the other one uh, or I'm here. So I decided that instead of, 
putting myself under that kind of pressure of having another business to attend all the time, then I would have a prep kitchen. And so six doors down, a hair salon became available. uh, And, you know, we we took the whole place apart. We stripped it all out. And then we put back a huge cool room so that we could actually have a space to store enough fish for what we were doing because the desire at St. Peter had grown to eat something dry aged and to eat some offal and to do all those things and to eat continued diversity which you know i'm always talking about but if i can't actually house more than a dozen fish in the fridge that i have here at saint peter then it becomes very challenging so to take another space with a bigger cool room a large prep bench in the middle of it and then also to sustain that business on its own two feet and allow it to trade as a proper real business rather than a glorified studio for cutting fish <laughs> yeah. then i put you know a retail aspect in there which was to reimagine what the fish shop is because i believe that the fish shop globally hasn't changed since day dot it's always slanted glass with ice and every half an hour somebody will come along with a hose and give it a spritz and just make it all look like it's just come out of the water again yeah and usually the floor is really wet and the place stinks and it's really cold that's the model that exists right now so what we decided was that it would be very dry. I know that some people have kind of compared it to an Apple store of fish. It, um, that's exactly <laughs> what it feels like. Uh, and, you know, to a degree, it is fairly austere in the in the sense that there isn't like every fish, traditional fish shop thing available. It's meant to represent the season that we're in. And instead of having piles of fillets, that at the bottom are cold and then at the top are ambient. We work within an enclosed glass box which sits at the correct temperature and we put one of each fish species within that box. And we only do one so that then we're showcasing singularly the fish species that we're, we're kind of highlighting for that moment. And we cut it in a way that brings comfort and desirability to the consumer. So if they see John Dory in the box that day, it might be a bone-in chop. And then next to that, there might be a fillet of kingfish. And then next to that, there might be a beautiful butterfly, King George Whiting, that's already been crumbed. And we try to put them in to show the diversity and the cuts that we can offer as well. So when somebody comes in, and the first thing that usually gets said is, is that all the fish you've got? Because there's one of each. And so oftentimes, people will come in, see it, and walk out. which is challenging as well because they think that that's the last of what we have to offer. Right. And that's a challenge for me as a business owner because you want to be, you want to stay true to what you believe in and what you want the place to be. But then as well in your mind, you might, you think, well, if I loaded this box up, then there would be a, a thought that there'd be more sense of generosity and just that the greater amount of fish that's there, the more, you want to purchase it so the abundance thing of a fish shop is what is missing from from that but i wanted it to be singular as i said but when you come in and you see john dory there you're like oh wow great you've got john dory uh and then we say yeah what were you thinking how many are you cooking for and then usually it's you know two or three but if they say look i'm cooking for eight people and we don't really like cooking it on the bone we just want like just the fillet and so it's like okay no problem we go to the cool room we take the whole fish out we put it on the counter and then we cut it specifically for the individual so Mm -hmm. if they want to cook for five or six people or whatever it is then we offer the suggestion that they take a larger piece instead of taking five 
little pieces because five little pieces are going to run every chance of overcooking mm-hmm. or being challenging to cook in a fry pan. So we give you one large piece and then you cut it once it's cooked. And as well as that, we tell you you should cook it on the skin because it tastes better on the skin or you should poach it or you should steam it. And we offer methods of cookery and solutions and times and temperatures because we've personally cooked it already that morning and we understand what is the best method of cookery in our eyes so that you go home and you do your money justice Mm -hmm. and also you take away a bit of confidence from it that you haven't cocked it up. Yeah, Because a lot of the times you invest a lot of money in a portion or a, or a whole fish or whatever. And oftentimes you you don't do your money justice and then you end up with a bit of a mess or a chalky dry piece of fish and then you're like, well, that was terrible. And the ignorance of most then goes, well, the fish was really bad yeah. and it wasn't great and I'm not going to go to that fish shop again. And so when you have that experience, that's obviously negative for the business. Hence why the customer service is paramount importance when you go to the butchery. The guys and girls that are down there are very trained in the sense that they want you to go home with the right information so that you have a great experience. So that ultimately leads to return customers Mm -hmm. for us. But then the customer being confident more in the fish species because if we convince you to get wild kingfish instead of farm kingfish mm-hmm. then you need to experience why why we're saying that one is better from the other um so, I've got yeah. so many questions yeah. for you about that. Um, <laughs> before we dive into the book and and a lot of this logistical stuff you said that you cook every night for your guests? I for the first 2 years of this restaurant being open was Minus a handful of days, cooked every single service, much to the detriment of the business in terms of the staff because I had staff here that were excellent. Like there was a period of time throughout having this restaurant where we had a handful of chefs that were extraordinary Mm -hmm. and unfortunately I had too many really good chefs. And the hard part is is this business could run with, you know, four chefs if we were open four days a week and they just do four days and then that's it. But when you get busy obviously there is only so many sections here um when we open like midway through opening like a year in you know i had i think seven chefs here and only three sections and they're all sub 30 and they're all going to kill each other to get onto the best section yeah and but meanwhile i'm trying to cook every service because i want it to be perfect and i want it to be you know so there's that pride and ego and it's my baby thing going on where it's like i'm not going to let anybody else ruin this for me which was really bad <laughs> yeah, and it's now part of being a business owner yeah now. and now three years later it's kind of everyone in this kitchen now is cooking and i'm standing on the other side of the kind of kitchen in the makeshift past that we don't have but we've created because i want to have my eyes on things and and be plating up the food and things but as well i want the younger staff and, and the staff in the kitchen to be to be actually feeling like they're progressing and learning and, you know, being trained properly. So Are you nervous that someone's gonna do what you did and that they're gonna go out and start their own restaurant? Is that an no. a fear for you? No, hence why I gave away everything in the book. Like I mean, there is nothing that I left out of the book. Like mm. down to temperatures, humidities, times. Every single thing that was in my head, you know, eighteen months ago about fish was in the book um wasn't even 18 months ago it was like inside a year ago it was um eight weeks of brain dumping into this book um yeah i don't have i like in the beginning yes out of 
the ego thing in your head when you see people start engaging with some of the work that you've done and it kind of filtering out and it's just been normalized very quickly there was a sense of oh you know that's mine <laughs> kind of thing but then very quickly it was like oh that's really that's amazing and very flattering and and now to see people doing things out of the book it's so amazing and like i'm really excited hopefully to write another book because that kind of engagement especially globally is really rewarding and wonderful and so if any of the chefs in this kitchen left tomorrow and went and opened a fish shop i'd be so proud and i'd be the first one there so yeah i think the legacy of a chef is more in not the dishes that you've created but in the staff that you've trained and mentored and will continue to do so so that's my view of it let's talk about the book Mm. when did it come out it came out not that Um, long ago September 1, so it coincided with the restaurant turning three. November the 5th last year, I met Hardy Grant Publishers for the first time and Jane Wilson, um, and she was amazing. She was the kind of conspirator to get me um, in, in the fold to get this book written. And I'd been looking around for a little while for a publisher, and the wonderful thing about them was that they flew the flag as much as I was in regards to new thinking with regards to fish. But they were very hesitant that fish books just don't sell Hmm. um, because, you know, they had probably a bad run of, you know, fish books that just kind of sat on the shelf. And also they're fully aware, as I am, that it is confrontational and, and it is a challenging protein to get your hands on and also to cook with confidence. But they backed me into it. And they said, when do you want the book out? And I said, I'd love it to be September. And they're like, great, September's perfect, Christmas coming up, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, perfect, let's do September. And then an hour later, then I heard them talking amongst themselves and they said, Christmas 2024 is going to be really busy with this one and that one and that And I just ran over to them. I'm like, no, 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 it's got to be 2019. It's got to be next year. And then they're like, right, uh, how much have you written? And I said, I haven't started yet. And then they're like... (laughs) right um so you you understand it'll be 60 recipes and it'll be all these words and chapters and things and you know if you want it out september next year we're going to need the whole book back to us by january 14th (laughs) and i'm like yeah no that's fine and then they were just like right and you know some of them were laughing and some of them were like oh this is ridiculous and I said, no, 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 that'll be fine. And so I signed the contract. And then my wife was due with our third child on the 17th of December. (laughs) Uh, So I got patches done throughout evenings, like where I'd finish service and then go up. We'll have thought of something, write it down. And I just keep dropping things into it. And then the restaurant every year uh, shuts from Christmas Day till two weeks later, January 14 or January 7, 10 something. And... I said to my wife, who now (laughs) is looking after our three children and also, you know, she manages the restaurant from afar as well. I said, are you okay if I go to the restaurant for two weeks while we're shut over our holiday, in inverted commas, uh, and sit in the restaurant between seven and seven and get this book written? And then she just said yes, and that's fine. And so... I came in and rather than sitting at my desk upstairs, which gets quite hot through summer, I sat in the restaurant and I worked on an iPad for the majority of time and then other times on my phone. And so in total, I think in eight weeks, I got the book written and handed over to them on the 14th. And then 
couple of months later, it was like six weeks later, we started the shoot where we did 60 recipes in four days here at the restaurant. And then I went to Paris for two days for the World Restaurant Awards. And then I got back from Paris. And then the next three days was getting all of the butchery shots done. Sorry, first time was seven days for 60 recipes. Then four days post-Paris to get the, the kind of butchery 101 basics all the kind of cuts and those kind of mechanical shots done up there. So in 11 days of photography and eight weeks of writing, we got this book produced and on the shelf on September 1. And September 12th and 17th, it hit the UK and America. And then I went away for my trip October the 4th or 5th. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I was back November the 5th. So I was gone for a month um, of trying to flog the book as far and wide as I could. Why the rush for 2019? Why not just wait the for 2020? Momentum, like there was a level, like there was a momentum there that you know when we opened the restaurant in September 2016, I needed to, you know, you need in Sydney that you need in a field globally as well. There needs to be the expectation is that you achieve many things to then fuel the second year's business, and not to say that we don't now because it's more so now than ever. But you you put your head down and you try to. Make as much noise as you can. (laughs) And so, hence the Instagram and all that sort of stuff and the repetition of photography and generating interest and and inspiring and all that sort of things. So, we did all of that and that got us through our first year and then we got written about by the New York Times and then that got us into the second year and then I was like, we've run out of space and then the butchery came and that kind of got us to partway into the third year and partway into that I was like, I need to think about year four and year five and how we're going to... Because I'm thinking about a five-year lease and every year I'm two years further forward because I need to think about that so that the wheels keep turning. And so, you know, the book was so important to that plan and momentum. And to have it come out in 2020 would have been a handbrake and it just didn't fit in with what I wanted. And I feel like to a degree I make relatively good decisions with my wife based on momentum and a feeling that things should happen at certain times. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're stupid, as in opening a fish shop on Oxford Street in Paddington is probably the most ludicrous idea ever. But without the butchery now, St. Peter really wouldn't function the way it does. Uh, And I feel it makes it more efficient. Our wastage has gone down dramatically. Our food cost has improved dramatically. And our our labour as well across the board is far more efficient. And the level of education happening between butchery and restaurant is, I feel, a wonderful thing for chefs to have a place where you can actually fillet a whole fish that is whole and scale it and gut it and people that come through the doors if they only take one thing away from their experience of working with us and that is to look at a fish differently the next time you have it in front of you then the work is done yeah kind of thing so because you do get indoctrinated with no water no ice you know don't throw that in the bin all those things it's changed me entirely it's been so cool to watch you because obviously living in sydney i'd heard about you because I cook fish and people are like, have you heard about this young chef? I started watching and then I remember when your book launched and I got, thank God actually that I purchased it right away because it sold out not that long after. Unfortunately, it's kind of, it's, (laughs) it's a wonderful thing, but then it's frustrating as well that, you know, some people kind of can't get their hands on it 
uh, at a time of the year when really they should be able to. Yeah. But next Thursday, I get another thousand copies sent to this restaurant here. But I feel like now we've caught up and there's they're all back on the market. But the book's now in its fifth print run, which is wonderful. How many copies have you sold? Uh, well, I haven't had a look. I, I haven't been told actual sales numbers, but I can say that it's over 50,000 copies now have gone out. So, And it's going to continue to grow from there. Hopefully. If someone has never heard of you or the Whole Fish Cookbook yes. before, what is the Whole Fish Cookbook? The Whole Fish Cookbook I wrote because, like I said previously, I feel like the wheel has only spun a certain way with fish before and... A fish book usually has the conventional filleting methods. It has something fried. Uh, There's usually top shots of dishes taken and the fish fillet then sits on a different garnish on the next page that you turn over. Or the whole fish is stuffed with fennel and lemon and then maybe on the next page it's capsicums and tomatoes. It's kind of, you know, and that is... there is wonderful fish cooks in the world producing wonderful cookbooks like Nathan Outlaw and Rick Stein and, you know, even, you know, chefs further abroad in, in France. And and the level of attention that and, – and the revenants that fish gets held in is wonderful. But for my book, I really wanted to show people that there is so much we're not looking at, like in the Western world. And, yes, Eastern cultures and cultures around the world celebrate the whole fish, but then how does their – recipes translate into a western audience um how do we bring desirability to an eyeball how do we make people eat a fish liver how do we celebrate secondary species and not just keep consuming salmon and snapper all the time so the book really has been chapterized down into especially in the recipes part of the book which is at the back we've chapterized the recipes into methods of cookery and the reason for doing that is this feeling that generally speaking there is a lack of confidence when purchasing fish that yes i've been told that i need to buy this bonito or mackerel or something that i've not really wanted to cook before i've been told that i should give it a shot once you buy that fish then it's very hard to understand as a domestic cook with the domestic appliances then how to get the best result from it like how do i actually make this delicious um should i just throw this whole bonito in the oven and then just roast it until it's cooked probably not because it's going to end up dry as anything and just not delicious. So I try to offer a variety of species, both Atlantic and Pacific choices, so that we're not only talking about Australian fish. We try to give the best method of cookery specific to the species of fish that I'm talking about and then start at the most simplest form that you can achieve that method of cookery as, whether it's you know just simply sliced raw fish or as simple as putting a sardine fillet under oil on the plate right through to putting a fish inside a fish inside a fish and doing a fish to duck. And, um, so there is extremes of creativity in there, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to saturate it full of chefy kind of things. And I feel like that's the hardest thing for a chef to do is write a cookbook that appeals to both domestic and commercial people. So I feel like we w- walked a really nice line throughout the book where it brings good humor and comfort to the home cook, but as well, it expresses the extremes of technique and creativity that I was wanting in my first book to show the chefs of the world that, yes, I'm, I do this and this is my work and this is what I've been working towards. So 
in the first part of the book is the, I suppose, I think we call it the knowledge uh, of the book. And the knowledge, I feel, needs to be read before attempting any of the recipes. Because 100%. the recipes, and I, it sounds a little bit self-indulgent, but I feel like to read the knowledge of the book then will allow you to pick up any fish book that you own currently or any cookbook that you own currently and ultimately achieve a better result because the method of production that I'm talking about just really isn't practiced globally. We're talking about a method, like I said before, where fish is buried in ice and sent to market. Mm -hmm. It's usually kind of mucked about with a bit too much and using one of the bear traps on a stick that I like to call it for a scaler and ripping the scales off a fish often leads to a texture of the fillet that is a little bit softer and not so great. And then when the guts get ripped out of you know the interior of a fish usually they're ripped to the point of destruction and not being able to use the fish because why would you use fish guts and then the fish then gets washed out and the whole surface that you're working on gets washed and the reason that is is because the model that exists right now for for seafood is efficiency the more fish that you can produce as a cutter per hour is the more you get paid you get paid per fish and if my chefs down at Fish Butchery got paid per fish, then they would be broke because the methods that we practice is far more laborious and tedious because ultimately we're going to yield a greater shelf life and we're going to yield a greater percentage from the fish, meaning if I can generate two fish worth of product from one fish, then that's one less fish coming out of the water. So traditional logic says 45% of a round fish is what is the yield. And the loss then of 55% is the loss. And majority of the time goes in the bin. And that's not being fair to the people that make stocks from bones. But then how much flavoured fish water do you need? So to yield now 91 to 95% from a whole round fish means we've doubled the capacity that a fish can offer uh, somebody. And... The whole thing about water, I just don't understand how we've normalized this method of production where once a fish comes out of the water, why is it that we feel that we need to wash it again? Like, why does it need to go back into water? Is there a butchery anywhere in the world that does meat that is taking the shanks off a lamb, taking the shoulders off a lamb, taking sirloin off the back of a cow, and then once that comes off, dipping that meat into a pool of water, then when it comes off, cut the steak dip the steak back into water and then put it immediately directly on top of shaved ice and then sell it. No. That just doesn't exist. And if it did, <laughs> then maybe we would look at something called beefy beef or lamby lamb. That's right. Because we're talking about fish and always the conversation comes up is what's your least fishy fish? Mm -hmm. The only reason why we have fishy fish is because of the ammonia that builds up within the fish from the trimethylamine oxide that breaks down and deteriorates. And we end up with something riddled with ammonia, which is that fishy odor. And the only way to offset that fishy odor is the use of acidic ingredients. Lemon. Which is why we continue to put a half a lemon on a plate, tartare sauce, hollandaise sauce, beurre blanc, all the acidic ingredients. And there is nothing wrong with acidic ingredients with fish. I have halves of lemon on plates of fish that I serve, but it shouldn't be exhausted to the point where it needs to have acidity because we're planning for fishy odors to eventually happen. Coming up, Josh and I dive into a different version of proper fish handling. This episode of Anchored is brought to you by Poster Burner. 
Taking photos has never been easier, yet most of us just leave our photos to take up space on our phones and computers. Personally, a lot of my photos never see a printer, leaving photos of my daughter and fish of a lifetime to get lost in the archives. The truth is that printing photos can be daunting and inconvenient, but they can also be really expensive. Poster Burner takes those special pictures and turns them into posters and canvas prints for your home, decals and banners for your business, custom cases for your phone, and much more. With Christmas just around the corner, Poster Burner is offering a 10% off discount to Anchored listeners. Just go to posterburner.com forward slash anchored today and create customized, meaningful gifts at reasonable prices. That discount applies to every type of print they offer, so it's a great way to get stocked up on printed imagery for work or home. Again, just head on over to posterburner.com forward slash anchored. With this series... Mm. I would like to say that I'm going out and catching all my own fish, which I am going to ask you about, but it's not practical just because of the sheer amount of recipes that I'm, I am cooking and all of the F ups, like I'm messing up so many recipes. And so I've got this great relationship with the fish market down the street, but I needed uh, a lot. What are your thoughts? Like, and what are their thoughts? They actually are on the same page as you. Mm. So I think they were already doing a lot of dry handling, but they, they think I'm insane. (laughs) (laughs) They've, they've grown used to me, but I started going down to the Sydney fish market Mm. because I thought surely that would be the place to go to get all my fish, mm. you know, awful. I think I've had three of them bring me into the back room. Mm. It was astounding. There's just this huge trough of water. Mm. The people are going through fish guts and fish and everything gets dipped in water. I mean, mm. multiple times. And I've had to put in a couple of special requests for dry handling, but mm. the guys, you know, the owners have let me know this is very much just a one-time thing because it's too exhausting for us to have to be dry handling this. Mm-hmm. There's just this general perception that you have yeah. to and the rinse day, it in And also water. the day that you purchase fish, you consume it. Yeah, so it's built into everybody. There is no, like, if you go now from this conversation down to the market, grab your fish in your brain already, it's straight away I'm cooking that for my dinner tonight. tonight. I'm not going to put that in my fridge because my fridge will stink. And why would I do that? It's fish. Fresh is best. What if people dipped it into salt water? There's something to be said about taking a fish from the water. And, And for me personally, I don't go fishing. And I don't go hunting and things like that. So if you catch a trout, it comes up, you gut the fish and you put it in, you rinse it in the water that it's been taken from and then go and cook it straight away, no problem. Wonderful. Not a problem because you haven't actually allowed anything to start breaking down. I had chefs over in America saying to me, you're saying that, every method that's ever happened with all these like this process is wrong so then how does restaurants like la bernardine who only serve fish have three stars and how does all these restaurants all around the world get held into the acclaim that they do and they're all washing their fish and it's like this is a conversation more so about taking a restaurant like the la bernardine to the world that that only serve fish you're looking at a 36 hour window of opportunity to use that fish and that's what they do you purchase fish and then it's at its best or or seen to be at its best once that time is done then there's another avenue for it whether that's family meal where you make some fish cakes and put in the freezer and all that sort of stuff but that never interacts with the customer the customer only experiences fish within 36 hours so my conversation is more, how do I actually purchase a fish and gain more than three to four days shelf life? And through finding out that there is 
longer time through not washing it, then we end up with developing the glutamates in a fish and making it taste more savory and more complex and more delicious. And actually realizing that through time and maturation, doing this handling the way we do it, our fish don't go fishy. If at any point our fish spoils, it's because through dry aging, we've lost too much moisture, we've promoted too much fat, and then the fat rancidifies and goes sour. Mm. So we don't have fishy fish the only things that make fishy fish is washing because a fish is porous it holds moisture and then usually a fish will get cling wrapped or wrapped in cloth or put on a tray and just left on one side and then all of that juice and everything just incubates and what we think is the right thing which is washing and getting the odors off and getting the sediment off you are giving life to all of this yuck to kind of grow you know (laughs) moisture is the enemy you think about fermentation and you know all those kinds of things moisture is often what is detrimental to long-term storage of anything so if i can reduce moisture at least surface moisture from the fish and then try to extract some of the unnecessary moisture within fish then what we're doing is we're we're heightening the actual flavor of the fish you may well not have ever tried spanish mackerel truly for the delicious fish that it is because you're eating it on day one and two or three and four it's only then through days seven and eight and nine that it all becomes very complex and you actually start tasting the oils of the fish and it's more savory and there's more mushroom characteristics which is fascinating because usually when you get asked the question what does this fish taste like it gets met with adjectives of, yeah, no, it's delicious, it's flaky, it's oh, the texture, yummy, yeah. and it's kind of white and juicy. <laughs> and it's kind of like, yeah, but what does it taste like? And that's the hard question to answer. And it's still a hard question to answer for us because it's very hard to articulate flavors of a fish, especially with so much, like I said, unnecessary moisture that is within a fish. Majority of fish carry around 75 to 80% moisture content, which dilutes the very small amount left then of fat. So if you can drop the moisture in a fish 15, 20%, then all of that fat comes forward and you can get it on your lips, the gelatin and the fat, and it carries all this extra flavor. And when you can promote more flavor in a fish, then you can promote secondary species of fish that have always been looked at as being nothing. Everybody sees all these other random fish as second-class citizens. There's a reason why we only really tap into 20 fish around the world constantly. Like there's a hit list of the top 20, 25 species that always just keep getting flogged to death, yet there's millions of fish species all over the world. I've got so many questions for you just because I have been following your book and I've hit a few obstacles and I really don't have anyone else to ask but you. (laughs) So selfishly, I'm going to ask you. But can I age... These can I age fish in my fridge, or do I need to have an aging room at a at a specific yeah, temperature? I mean, it's it's very hard to age fish to the extremes of what we do with a very specific fridge. So I did offer up the kind of conversation about here's what it looks like if you want to do it commercially, and here's an idea of what could happen in a domestic kitchen. Old-fashioned fridges are wonderful because the old-fashioned fridge has got the copper coil that runs in the back of the fridge, Mm -hmm. so it doesn't actually have a fan. So if you have 
one of those great old fridges that your grandparents had in the shed (laughs) that I know growing up my grandparents had like you know the fridge in the back and you could see the copper coil on the back wall and that would be what kept the fridge cold as opposed to very modern fridge now which has a fan in it and blows cold air in to circulate it so if you have one of those fridges maybe worth committing that fridge to fish if you are somebody that is purchasing or catching a lot of fish to take the racks out of it put a little rack in the top of the fridge and then using zip tie cords or whatever you want butcher's hooks then hang your fish over the length of your of your stand-up fridge and by doing that then you're able to age your fish um, up to 30 days or plus? I mean, I wouldn't be going to 30. I, I would be lying to say that you could do 30 days at home because I don't know what f- what temperature that old fridge is working at, uh, how, how frequently it's getting opened. I would suggest that two weeks would be the potential of a fish at home. And all of this is trial and error. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I came here having never dry-aged a fish. Like, I mean, I did it partially about five years ago just with the thinking. But then to come here and inherit the fridge that I did here at St. Peter, we then had to separate one part of the cool room, put doors on it, and then in behind that wrap copper coil along the back wall, and then put, like, shower rails <laughs> in the top of the roof and then hang the fish on that. The reason we hang the fish is so that they don't come in contact with one another. If fish come in contact with one another, they sweat on each other and then you get that odour. So that's the reason for hanging it. We don't, we don't break down connective tissue. We don't, you know, make it more tender. Like, it's not the idea. What's the maximum so, amount of time that you'd hang for here? Here, 50, 50 days. I think I did an albacore tuna for 50 days. And after that time, what we found was that we'd almost made bluefin tuna. Yeah. <laughs> it was so fatty. Um, it became quite unstable after that, though. Do you have to cure it or can you just hang it as it is? Hang it out natural. No kidding. Mm. Okay, can I hit you with some questions? Sure. All right. You have said in your book that mm. and, and here that yes. 55% goes to waste typically in the culinary world. Yeah. And obviously in reading your book, I've seen that, you know, the average number, it depends on species. And, and also it depends on the kind of restaurant you are. I, I say this... And I, know, I don't want to offend anybody. It's more just I know that restaurants out there cook halves of heads and, you know, they cook the collars and, you know, they make stocks from the bone. And so, yes, there are bits and pieces of waste, so it may not be that severe. But as a general rule of thumb of what chefs are being educated in schools that they then take on and go and apply in their kitchens is that 55% is seen as loss. Mm-hmm. And so... If you don't have a restaurant with the confidence of your customer base wanting to fiddle around, eating around an eyeball and eating around the big bones and cartilage that surround the jowl of the fish, then that usually goes to staff meal or, you know, waits for somebody to order it and then it just gets to a point where it goes bad and you throw it out. And it's not really seen as loss because you were trying to use the loss anyway. So the work that we do and the work in the book is trying to show people how to make those secondary products, the 55%, desirable to a Western audience. That's why we make chips out of the eyes. That's why we make pate out of the livers. We need to bring a sense of good humor to offal and desirability. As an angler, I want you to step into my shoes yes. now because this is where my audience is and this is where I'm, I'm really at too. With You've endured this long so <laughs> we can get to the good stuff now. <laughs> Even though well, I'll probably suck at it. But. No, no, I'm not going to make you walk through each because uh, when we spoke before, you get, you very kindly gave me an hour of your time, you know, a, a 
couple months ago, you yeah. walked me through every single organ. And you showed me where the kidneys were on a fish, so, <laughs> which now we're using. So oh, good. Fantastic. Mm. You know, and so it's the sort of thing where if people really want to get into that, they can read the book or they mm. can follow the series. There's a whole lot, or they can follow your Instagram. Yeah. Um, I don't want to take your time up going through all that again because mm. you're very busy and oh, I know cool. that you're open again tonight for dinner, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, but I do want to talk about what my personal obstacles have been. Yeah. So when I've been looking at the 91% usage, that's yes. been really inspiring for me. Yeah. And you've, since, you know, you've confirmed that the gills, pyloric sciatica and the gallbladder are really yes. what we are tossing. That's what we're like physically tossing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've been looking at the rest of, of the pieces and, and we are going to talk a bit about them. Yeah. But first we need to talk about gutting because yes. that's something that is very confusing. I actually yeah. have this guy on the internet who messaged me last night to say, make sure that you ask about the Japanese spike through the brain. Oh, they kid you me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does that make a difference? It- yeah. Yeah. To give you a brief rundown and I'm no Japanese Ikijimi master by any means, but uh, from the fishermen that we work with that practice this, basically when you're catching a fish, you throw a line out you're reeling in your fish. A fish is trying to go the other way, obviously, because it doesn't want to get pulled up. The fish is generating a whole lot of lactic acid within the actual muscle, and then it runs out of oxygen to sustain that lactic acid buildup, so then it stops the fight, and up it comes. It comes up onto the deck. The best course of action you can do then is spiking the fish in the brain, running you know, the, uh, the wire, like a, a very fine wire, down that spike that you've created that then penetrates the spinal cord you feed that wire down the spinal cord to sever the fish completely paralyzed sends the fish into rigor mortis and sorry wire goes down kills the fish once that's done cut the gill bleed the fish from the gills and then into ice water slurry to get the temperature yes, down. I heard about this for carp. So when, and this sounds then hypocritical to, okay, fish is out of the water, now it's going back into water. I thought you said not to put fish into water. Yeah, I was so confused So important this. that a fish goes into ice water to get the temperature down. And also what happens is the fish needs to be bled correctly so that once the blood is taken out of the fish, that's so critical then to the integrity of the flesh. If the fish isn't bled correctly, the blood will return to the flesh and you'll end up with this foggy pinkish hue that is somewhat more oxygenated than what it could have been. It could have been more glassy, translucent and pale in colour. So bleeding a fish is really important. If the blood is in the fillet as well, the blood is the first thing to spoil. And so your whole fish will be metallic and tainted from blood sitting in the muscle. So it's so critical that a fish is bled correctly. As well then, brain spiking and then into the eye slurry is critical of lactic acid removal from the fish. If you can't remove the lactic acid from a fish and you just catch a fish, it comes up, beats around on the deck until it suffocates and dies and it gets thrown onto a pile, then all that lactic acid is sitting in the muscle and the temperature of the fish is kind of... It's not its not the temperature that it was by any means. Um, and then all of that lactic acid, if you can think about ceviche where you would squeeze lime juice over the top of a fillet of fish and you watch in front of your eyes that fish go milky mm-hmm. and cooked... You think about lactic acid sitting in the fish muscle and doing the same thing as lime juice. So all of a sudden then you've got this reverse ceviche thing going on and when you go and cut into that fish and look at the profile of it later, you'll see that the fish almost looks like it's already cooked 
or it's milky or it's foggy or it's weeping moisture from the muscle because every one of the lines in a fish, like the concentric lines that you see within a fillet, every one of those lines represents one muscle of a fish. And so usually you see moisture beating through those muscle lines and then when you go and put that in a fry pan and it's come from a place that the fish hasn't been handled correctly and that lactic acid hasn't come out, you'll cook that fish and it will be spitting out lots of water into your fry pan. You'll get oil splashing up and kind of going all over the place and more often than not you won't even get a crisp skin. It'll be a mess. It'll be a mess and then you'll never end up with that why can't rest like why do restaurants do this and not me and why can't I get a crispy skin and you know usually because you're buying a really average fish caught yes. by somebody that doesn't really care would you put a saltwater fish into an ice yeah bath? ice slurry so yeah, yeah. Okay. so saltwater ice slurry for fish caught in the ocean that's the way that our our fishermen up in Queensland and Victoria and fishermen that we work with are working so it goes straight into the ice slurry um some fish obviously like we work with some fishermen that don't do that ikijimi method because it is fairly specific and specialized somewhat so um you know to have fishermen working this way and getting the temperature down on their fish and the lactic acid out through that chilling period then we're getting a better product and what that does is to give you your answer to your question which was how much beneficial then is ikijime and all that sort of stuff you get a significantly longer shelf life from fish if it is handled in that way you look at sushi chefs and japanese chefs um, that have practiced this method for centuries and they might be serving you tuna or kingfish or something like that on a nigiri that already is seven eight days old and it's complex, it's delicious, it's one mouthful, and you're like, wow, that's the best fish I've ever had in my life. And usually the context is that's the freshest fish I've ever had in my life. But really, freshness in people's brains is something tasting really delicious because usually that's indicative of fruit ripeness and freshness. If you get a really good apple, it's just straight off a tree. If you get a really good asparagus, it's snapped out of the ground and then you eat it and it's juicy and it's sweet and it's lovely fish the same thing it's like straight out of the water hence why we've got restaurants that are positioned on the waterfront so that it's like oh how that (laughs) fish must be so fresh they're jumping through the window you know and all that sort of stuff so that's why it's strange for us like we're on oxford street in sydney we're next to an iga we're next to a hair salon it's not really doesn't have that connotation of water and freshness and you know all this sort of stuff it's a brick sandstone lined room where people are coming in and going wow this is the freshest piece of fish i've ever had and it's like well actually that tuna there is three weeks old and you might be saying it's freshest because it's probably the most delicious that you've maybe tried in recent time usually people's best experiences with fish come off the back of a boat where you've gone out and then you've caught a fish and then you cut into it and then you eat it. Texturally, it's crunchy and it's quite firm. You don't have any odour. It's fresh. It's clean. It's it's only maybe the taste of the water that it's been caught from. And usually that's why we like it because everything else we're dealing with in a market space is rinsed with water, stored really badly and carries a whole lot of ammonia. And so then... It's very, it's separated then. So then everybody's desire is I need to get on, I need to get my fish as fresh as I can so that I can resemble that experience that I had on the back of a boat 
and yeah. guilty, guilty. And to be fair, on the back of the boat, you're usually for me anyway. If it's not just the whole mentality of the fact that it's fresh, then you you know you bring it home and there's soy sauce and you're eating it raw with a bunch of flavoring. You're not really tasting the fish. Yeah, a lot like of I the mean, time. I, I say that as well. I was trying to be I was trying to be nice about it, but usually when oh, you're on the back nice. of the, usually when you're on the back of a boat, all you can taste is the cheap kikkerman that you're dipping it in and the wasabi and all that sort of stuff. And it's like, wow, this is so delicious, so fresh. Guilty. It's white. It's white protein that yeah. has texture. Now, what about the fact that when I bleed my fish out, I basically snap the jugular and they bleed. Why not do that? Why do I have to put a spike through the brain? Are you snapping? You're snapping that on the outside. So you're just breaking the mm-hmm. fish. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> and this is, I suppose, where I enter into the world of not knowing. And all of my work comes from a place of culinary, like, and also procurement of working with people who are very skilled in what they do. Yeah. So I don't want to plead ignorance in terms of not ever going out and seeing what happens. But I physically have never kind of gone out and snapped the fish in, you know, broken its neck and, and done that kind of thing. I know a girl who will take you out to show you how that's done. <laughs> well, I think we should do that just to give me some context. <laughs> we but, should. But if um, you haven't experienced that and you're also not living in Wisconsin, no. you know, you're sitting, you're here and you've got your resources, how does the book speak to somebody who is catching their own fish yeah. or dealing with a fishmonger who has no idea how to process the fish that, you know, in the way that they maybe should be? Yeah, I mean, and that's the million-dollar question, and that's what I'm trying to learn to do because at the moment I've kind of haven't stumbled across anything by any means. I've purposefully gone out of my way to see how much we can yield from a fish, how long we can store a fish for, and and also make it delicious throughout that storage, and then how do we just minimise what we're throwing in the bin? So for people to then have questions for me which are how can I age fish at home? I give the best answer that I can, which was that one earlier. Um, how, like, what do I do when I get a big kingfish on the line and, you know, I, it comes up, what do I do with it then? Do I whack it? Do I, you know, like, do I spike? Do I give this Icky Jimmy thing a crack? Do I, you know, and that's, to me, like, that's very challenging. And I mean, in a world of YouTube and Google, a lot of that information is available like to watch videos and demonstrative instructions as to how you can spike your own fish. I'm saying that through trial and error of purchasing and consuming and cooking fish, Ikijime is the best method for us um, that we have noticeably seen fish be far more delicious, have far longer shelf life, and we can do so much more with a fish. The organs of a brain-spiked fish are far better. The blood isn't as saturated throughout the organs. Usually Mm. the fish is drier within, like it's not as, you know, mangled. You see trawled fish that come up in one heap. It's almost like think about a cow when it's going to slaughter. If it's stressed out and freaked out and goes through, your meat's going to be all tough and horrible and things. If the same thing, it's like... If a fish is killed humanely and practic- like and, and ethically and and point of capture wise wise has been really considered, and then it gets that cold chain management is consistent from point of capture to it being in your fry pan at home. If that cold chain has been kept at that steady temperature, you're going to have a wonderful experience and a great piece of fish. If there's variables of like the truck wasn't quite cool enough when it was getting shipped or it was buried in ice and all the scales got knocked off because all this heavy ice was sitting on top of it. Or when it was trawled and the net got lifted up, one of the other fish spiked the other fish through the middle and then it kebabbed another one on the other end of that. (laughs) And then that punctured the liver. So 
maybe when I try the liver, it's all soft and mushy and it's not great because the toxins at the end of the the spine has already punctured it. So situational it's super like complex like there's so many variables with fish handling and i'm right now trying to look at the next set of variables that i have to personally consider for the best product that our business can work with i know now that i'm in a position where i need to offer solutions on a more practical level on a bigger scale i don't want to falsely give information that i can't confidently say is is the best for everything that I've been told, it's take out great amount of ice so that when you do catch a fish, it goes straight into an ice slurry so that the same practice that the Ikijime gives you, which is lactic acid removal and flesh integrity, that same thing can happen through getting the temperature of fish down and killing a fish humanely in the sense that you're icing it, basically. Okay. And if it's left too long in ice, then you end up seeing that foggy eye set in, which is, you know, sometimes the clear crystal blue eyes that we look for is a quality point in fish. Sometimes they're not quite there because it's sat in ice too long. It might still be the best fish you've ever seen, but that quality point is missing because it's sat in ice too long. So not detrimental to the flesh or the quality of the fish, but if you see a fish with a foggy eye, oftentimes it's because of that. So this has to filter back down to the fish market and back down to the commercial fishermen yeah. in a lot of ways. Totally. And Which that's is why people should just go catch their own fish, you know? <laughs> <laughs> no. so, yeah, because when, tra- like when I traveled to London, like I was trying to do demonstrations and workshops and things for chefs. Mm. Because How'd you do sourcing fish over there? Yeah, like it was tricky. Like it was very hard. Like um, It's tricky here. Do you know I've been carrying your book all throughout every fish oh, market I that I go to? That. They hate me, but... I know they do. They're fascinated. <laughs> they're fascinated by it. And I'll tell you, it is. it starts changing just shop by shop. The one I'm going to in Manly at Harris Farm has been incredible. Sydney Fresh? Yep. And Amazing. They are not. they are not using water. Amazing. Well, yeah. Like, and I mean, and I'm not the pioneer of that. Like Stephen Hodges, Greg Doyle, Neil Perry... John Sussman, there's all these guys that have been practicing this method for so long because they've worked out that it's a better way of handling your fish. You get a longer shelf life, all those things. The only reason why it continues to get washed is efficiency uh, so that you can turn the product over faster. And that's why we call fish butchery a butchery as opposed to a munger because mungers deal and trade in a commodity. Right. And it's very finance-focused as opposed to a butcher which dresses and slaughters an animal in readiness to be sold. So pushing those two boxes together, then that gave me the the idea for the concept. But like you said just then, and to long story short answer, the only way that we're going to move forward with this, you know, person in Wisconsin that is dealing with, without the tools that I get to deal with, you need to actually communicate with people that your standard is, I don't want you to wash that fish. And if they're not wanting to do that, then can you please scale that fish for me? Can you please gut that fish for me? And I'll take it home with all the scale and gut sediment and things still on it so that when you get home, then you can wipe it off with a paper towel. That's not a very hard task, but they're doing the heavy lifting for you in terms of getting all the mess out of your house. And then it's just a paper towel wipe and then you're in the best possible position then to work with something that has never interacted with water. Last night I bought a barramundi mm. or I went to the store and they, they've been so good. They've just been giving me off cuts and they gave me all of the innards of a farmed barramundi. Mm. 
How was that? There was so much fat. I was yeah. dumbfounded because you had warned me about visceral fat. Yeah. And and I found, you know, a big, beautiful piece of, of webbing in, yeah. in the cod. I mean, sorry, in, in the bear, bear mundi. Yeah. But there was also so much hard fat. Was that it's fat? crazy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And all those little droplets that look like little maggots, that's all fat. fat. All fat. I have never experienced anything like that before with a wild caught fish. Was it wild? No, this was a farmed fish. Yeah, but I was going to say. With wild fish, yeah, I've never seen that. That won't happen. Like, it won't happen. There's no percentage of grain going into a wild fish's feed. I feel like I could say that it was 20% of the body weight. Yeah, 100%. Hence why we make our chocolate and fish fat caramel. That, I just, <laughs> like as somebody who's against farmed fish in a lot of ways, and again, there's always, there's always a time and a place for a farmed fish, hmm. I had a really hard time wrapping my head around it. Um, no, but it's fascinating. Like, you know, farm kingfish in Australia, farm barramundi. Like, I don't use farm barramundi. I don't use barramundi really in general. Just, I personally just don't enjoy it. I don't find it delicious. Um, you farm Murray cod that we use here at the restaurant and things. These fish are just on roids. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, the growth rates there and, you know, turning, turning fish over and all that sort of stuff and getting them to a size and constructing these fish for the consumer so that they have a positive experience with them so that they return to that fish because it will then tolerate any method of cookery that you endure that fish through at home. If you just put a farm piece of, you know, barramundi under the grill and you torch it, and you just nail it and you forget about it because the kids are running, causing you grief or whatever and your veggies are cooking and you're juggling everything and then you pull the fish out of the grill, it's still going to be all right because it's loaded full of fat. Yeah. And I feel like there's less importance placed on trying to get a farm fish to taste more like its wild self and it's more focused on creating a fish for the consumer to have a wonderful experience with it and so that they don't overcook it, doesn't dry out. It's just a 365 commodity that can be purchased whenever you want. Do you prefer farmed fish? No, because I'm more of a romantic in the sense that I love the seasonality of fish and I love the fact that I can turn up today and have no idea what I'm going to cook because some things aren't ready today that we're aging, then some things might be coming in because I don't age everything. Like if I get beautiful Tommy Ruff or herring that come in today, I'm going to butterfly them, get them in front of the fan, dry the skin out and then barbecue them tonight because they're going to be better right now. Same with the blue mackerel, same with a sardine, same with an anchovy. There's some fish that just don't age well just because of the way they are. So farm fish for me is a... It's hard to say necessity, but it's a really important thing moving forward. Like aquaculture is so important to the long-term look at fish, but I feel it needs to be looked at with the direction that it should be tasting like what it was in the wild. Are the farmed Murray cod done inland though? They're not in the ocean or anything. They're Mm. inland, right? Yeah. Yeah. So see, it's so variable when you're talking about, you know. Yeah. Like, I mean, we, we use, we, we use the fish that we find most delicious and in to a degree are most sustainably practiced. So unfortunately, sometimes the farm fish just tastes really bloody good and through aging, they get better. And then other fish that I just you know, wild kingfish is a really great example for me. I just really love the taste of wild kingfish, but it is very difficult to cook and few people really want to put it on their menu because to have many hands in your kitchen trying to cook that wild kingfish perfectly is quite challenging because it's very lean. It carries very little fat, but then you go and put a piece of farm kingfish in a pan and you watch that thing behave like pork. Like it's like crunchy skin, there's fat, like 
dripping out of it. It's crazy how fatty it is. I've never experienced anything like it. Do mm. wild fish even have visceral fat? Yeah. We, we work with a few like barcodes, harpukas, wreckfish, those kinds of fish. Uh, and on slightly larger species, you'll see some really great fat around the organs, not to the nth degree like it's like pulling out solidified fat like these farm fish have Um, but you will see some really nice fat throughout some of the bigger fish and we've used that fat webbing um, to age other fish within and sometimes with these farm fish fats we render them down into liquids then we paint them on the outside of fish and we age the fish within their fat perfect listen i'm gonna let you get back to work because i can see the guys getting ready for tonight <laughs> yeah, yeah. i've already picked your brain about all the different pieces of fish and i want people to tune into the book yeah and and learn in the way that i have because honestly it's just it is an experience sitting down to read that book for me anyway oh, has thanks. been a true experience so thank it's, you for uh, that no thank you for the for the airtime. um i it's a challenging topic because it's existed the way that it does for a very long time and people have built their lives around it and I'm not going to be the one to pull the handbrake up but I just want to suggest that there are some other things that we should consider and the only reason that I'm saying it is because I feel what we're doing is giving you such greater shelf life, we're throwing less fish in the bin and we're able to work with fish species that may have been overlooked before. Uh, just just based on handling them in a, 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 a bit better. So And so much of it is just in your head. Like I remember starting this series and being just really unexcited about eating fish heads. Mm. And now, uh, you know, even when I'm not filming or writing, I go home and I crave fish heads and go and get fish heads and cook <laughs> fish heads and eat the eyeballs and all of that wow. stuff. So, yeah, and, and I genuinely enjoy it. Wow. So yeah. a lot of it is just simply wrapping your head around it. Last night I, I grilled up fish liver. And because I was so disgusted with all the fat, I'd already turned my stomach, but my palate was saying, this is delicious, but my yeah, brain right. was fighting me. It was, this has all been a major mind, Wow! But you know, it's all in, cool. been in the head. So thank you. You bet. Um, listen, is there anything that you wanted to add or to ask me before I let you get back to work? I think we've covered off a lot. Um, I mean, keep having a look at the Instagram cause that's never, a, ever evolving sequence of images that kind of offers insight into what we're doing and what we're trying to to do with fish but yeah like i was saying before my agenda now is just to to kind of go beyond what we're doing here from a culinary aspect in the restaurant to then getting a little bit more intimate with the people that are catching our fish so that we can offer some solutions and also start talking with a few more fishmongers and and uh, people that handle fish frequently try to just look at maybe 10% of their work and just kind of say, if you did this, you would maybe yield this and you would get a little bit more time and it wouldn't be seen as the fleeting commodity that we currently see it as. It's a win-win for everybody. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, April. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. Please leave a review about Anchored online. Anchored.